Hi, this is Shivaraman from Johns Hopkins University. So today I'd like to talk to you a little bit about computer tomography after pancreatic duodenectomy, also known as the Whipple procedure. So we're going to begin by very, very briefly discussing the surgical procedure itself, the way it's performed, the major indications for the procedure, and some recent innovations in terms of how and when the procedure is performed. We're then going to talk about our technique at Hopkins in terms of CT protocols for imaging these patients, as well as what normal findings you should be expecting on CT in, the both, in both the acute perioperative period and the more chronic surveillance setting. But I'm going to concentrate mostly on a number of different complications that I think you as a radiologist should be able to recognize on a CT scan and help guide your clinicians when they try to treat them. Now, before I begin, let me just briefly say that this lecture is based on an article that Dr. Fishman, Dr. Horton, Dr. Cameron and I have written for an upcoming uh, issue of AJR. So it's titled, it has the same title as this lecture, and it's going to go through many of the topics we discussed in this lecture, but just in slightly more detail. So if you're interested in the topics we talk about during the course of this lecture, I recommend that you check out our article in the July version of AJR. Now, the Whipple procedure, as all of you know, is the most common procedure for the resection of tumors involving the pancreatic head, uncinate process, and pancreatic neck but it's also used for lesions involving the ampulla, the duodenum, and the extrahepatic bile duct. Now, I'd say that the vast majority of lesions that are treated with the Whipple procedure are neoplastic. But that being said, once in a while, the Whipple procedures are performed for something benign, things like strictures of the distal extrahepatic bile duct, groove pancreatitis, or even chronic pancreatitis. Now, the Whipple procedure traditionally has been thought of as an extremely risky procedure. For much of its history, it was associated with an extraordinarily high morbidity and mortality. But I'd say over the last 10 to 15 years, improvements in surgical technique, and perhaps even more importantly, critical care, have brought that mortality rate way down. So if you have your surgery done at one of the biggest centers, Hopkins, MGH, Duke, etc., your perioperative mortality rate now is down to probably less than 1%. Now, the Whipple procedure can be broadly divided into two types. There's the classic Whipple procedure and then the pylorus preserving Whipple. Now, the classic Whipple procedure involves resection of the pancreatic head, neck, and uncinate process, as well as the duodenum, gallbladder, distal bile duct, and proximal jejunum. Now, notably, the classic Whipple procedure involves resection of the gastric antrum, so these patients end up with a gastrojejunostomy. Now, in contradistinction, the pylorus-preserving Whipple is going to involve resection of all of the same portions of the GI tract except for the gastric antrum and the first portion of the duodenum. Those are going to be retained. So these patients, rather than ending up with a gastrojejunostomy, are going to get a duodenojejunostomy. Now, the original rationale for per performing the pylorus-preserving Whipple procedure was that some surgeons thought that maybe it reduced the incidence of bile reflux. I think over the last few years, there are several articles, including a large Cochrane database review, looking at a comparison between the classic and the pylorus-preserving Whipple procedures, and it's now thought that there's really no statistically significant difference in terms of either morbidity or mortality between these two procedures. Nowadays, if you end up with a Whipple, which of these two Whipple procedures you get is largely going to be dependent on your surgeon's preference and probably a little bit on your uh, anatomy. Now, the Whipple procedure, for a long time, was reserved for a small minority of patients. If you had pancreatic cancer to be quote-unquote resectable, you pretty much had to have no involvement of the SMV, the portal vein, the celiac, the SMA, and the hepatic artery. Over the last few years, on the other hand, we've seen an extraordinarily, extraordinary increase at Hopkins in the number of patients who are now eligible or getting the Whipple procedure. And that's largely for two reasons. One is that there's this new category of borderline resectable disease. Now, these patients do have some vascular involvement by tumor, 
often some minimal involvement of the celiac SMA or hepatic artery, or even significant involvement of the SMA and portal vein. And it's thought that they'll do okay with the Whipple procedure, provided that they get preoperative chemotherapy and radiation. In addition, a whole other batch of patients that become eligible for the Whipple because of these advances in terms of vascular reconstructions. So SMV and portal vein disease is no longer really an obstacle to getting a Whipple, provided that there's some kind of a technical option for reconstruction. Now, our surgeons at Hopkins are increasingly performing laparoscopic Whipple procedures for a range of different indications. They started off doing laparoscopic Whipples for benign things, then neuroendocrine tumors, and recently we've even seen them doing laparoscopic Whipple procedures for pancreatic adenocarcinoma. Our surgeons are doing extraordinarily vascular reconstructions, big SMV and portal vein reconstructions, venous interposition grafts, and even splenic vein grafts to treat left-sided portal hypertension. Now, here's a great illustration that Frank Coral at Hopkins has performed that shows the three anastomoses you're going to get with every Whipple procedure. Notice how you're going to get a pancreatic jejunostomy, then a biliary enteric anastomosis that's either going to be a cholidoca jejunostomy or an hepatico jejunostomy, and then finally a gastro jejunostomy or a duodeno jejunostomy. Now, at Johns Hopkins, we strongly believe that these patients should be imaged with dual face technique. So, most of these patients at Hopkins are going to get both an arterial and a venous phase, typically at 30 seconds and 60 to 70 seconds respectively after IV contrast injection. Now I know that most institutions around the country are just doing venous phase imaging for this indication, but I've just seen too many cases at Hopkins where the arterial phase images have been really helpful. Subtle vascular extravasation, subtle pseudoaneurysms, things that you might not have caught in the venous phase images alone. Secondly, I tend to really prefer giving these patients water or volumen as a neutral contrast agent, and I try to avoid positive oral contrast. For the most part, I think positive oral contrast agents will give you a bunch of streak artifact and could potentially obscure subtle findings in the surgical bed. Now, the one exception to that is that I do tend to give positive oral contrast if there's any suspicion of a gastrojejunostomy leak, because you may see active extravasation of that contrast from the GI tract. But that being said, gastrojejunostomy leaks are extraordinarily rare. The incidence is like less than half a percent. And so, in general, I think the positive oral contrast just isn't that helpful. And if you have to make a choice, I'd lean towards giving water or volumen. Now, it's important that every time you look at a Whipple procedure, you take an algorithmic approach. When I teach our residents or fellows to read a Whipple case, I always tell them, look at every structure in the same order every time, and you won't miss anything. Now, when I personally look at a Whipple case, I make it a point to look at each of the three anastomoses independently. I typically start by looking at the pancreatic jejunostomy, which is usually the most easy of the three anastomoses to identify on CT. Now, I think most of the time, the pancreatic jejunostomy is easiest to identify in the axial plane. Now, you may see a little bit of invagination as the jejunum and the pancreas come together, and that's normal. That doesn't mean that you've got some tumor there. That's just a normal bit of jejunum that's mashed up against the pancreas. Now, it's often a little bit harder to identify the pancreatic jejunostomy on the coronal plane. Now, the hepatic jejunostomy is probably the hardest of the three anastomoses to identify confidently in any plane. Now, here's an example where there's a stent extending from the extrahepatic bile duct remnant directly into the jejunum, so that makes it easy. Unfortunately, even at Hopkins, most of our surgeons don't put that kind of a stent in place. So oftentimes I find myself trying to guess where exactly is the anastomosis. I think the most reliable way of identifying the hepatico jejunostomy or cholidoca jejunostomy is to use new mobility to your advantage. 
Often you're going to see little bits of gas within the bile ducts, usually the left hepatic lobe. And I'm just going to follow that air down the bile duct into the jejunum. And that allows you to confidently identify the anastomosis. Now, it's important to remember that the loops of small bowel in that right upper quadrant leading up into the hepaticojejunostomy are very rarely going to be distended. In fact, many times they're going to be completely decompressed. And all too often I've seen this mistake. Those decompressed loops have been called tumor. I've seen them called hematoma. And all they are is just a few decompressed bowel loops. And you're not going to be able to distend those by giving oral contrast. Realize that this is a pitfall and try not to make that mistake. Now, the gastrojejunostomy tends to be relatively easy, relatively easy to identify as well. And you can see it either in the axial or the coronal plane. Now, in most cases, the gastrojejunostomy is going to be and the anterior most of the three anastomoses, and it's typically going to be slightly to the left of midline. Now, here's a great example in the coronal plane, and you can see the gastric remnant clearly communicating with that limb of jejunum running across the midline. Classic gastrojejunostomy, and I think shouldn't be a problem to identify for most of you. Now, once you're familiar with the postoperative anatomy, you need, to be, you need to be sure that you're not mistaking normal findings for pathology. In the acute perioperative setting, there are a set of relatively consistent normal postoperative findings. First of all, immediately after surgery, fluid, edema, fat stranding in the surgical bed are incredibly common. And that induration tends to be most prominent surrounding the SMA and the SMV. That's not tumor, that's just regular postoperative change. You're often going to get multiple prominent lymph nodes in the central mesentery and surrounding the pancreatic surgical bed. And again, those aren't metastatic lymph nodes. Those are almost always going to be reactive lymph nodes, even if the patient had positive nodes of surgery. Now, it's very common to identify some thickening and edema at all three of the anastomoses, whether it's the gastrojejunostomy, hepaticojejunostomy, or pancreaticojejunostomy. And as a result of that edema, it's really common immediately after surgery to end up with mild pancreatic ductal dilatation and mild intrahepatic biliary dilatation. You don't want to overread that and say that that's a stricture. That's something that most of the time is going to resolve over time or stay stable. So here's a great example of some normal images from immediate postoperative scan. Notice how there's induration, stranding, and edema in that surgical bed, but nothing that isn't unexpected. Now, one thing that you want to be cognizant of is that that little radio-opaque linear density in the pancreas is a pancreatic duct stent. That's not a retained foreign body or something you need to worry about. That's in the pancreatic duct and typically is going to run into the jejunum. Now, the pancreatic duct stent is now increasingly being used by surgeons across the country. And that's largely because there's some data in the literature suggesting that pancreatic duct stents may reduce the incidence of pancreatic fistula and pancreatic leak. And we'll talk about that a little more later in the lecture. Now, in the chronic setting, again, you're going to identify a relatively consistent set of normal postoperative findings. Now, most of the inflammatory change that we talked about earlier should resolve by about three to six months. But that being said, it almost never is going to completely resolve. That surgical bed is never going to look completely clean. There's almost always going to be a little bit of induration and thickening right along the posterior aspect of the surgical bed, right behind the SMA and the SMV. It's crescentic, it's linear, and it should never look nodular or mass-like. If it looks nodular, you've got to raise the possibility of tumor occurrence. But if you just see this thin, linear, non-mass-like area of soft tissue, that's just probably going to be postoperative fibrosis. Now, the reactive nodes we talked about, again, should typically resolve by about three to six months, but I've seen cases where they persist for years, and those aren't metastatic nodes. If you see a few nodes that haven't gotten smaller, but are relatively stable, I think you're probably best off just following them over time and not raising too much concern about them. Now, you're always going to end up with just a mild degree of pancreatic and biliary du ductal dilatation indefinitely. 
And that's not abnormal, that's just post-operative change. Now, if you see either of those ducts progressively dilate over time, or if there's severe dilatation, that's a problem. At that point, you need to raise concern for either an anastomotic stricture or for locally recurrent tumor that's obstructing those anastomoses. Now, depending on what exact site you practice in at, you know, we're increasingly seeing our pancreatic cancer patients, even when they're completely resectable, get either pre- or post-operative radiation therapy. Now, as a result, not only is the pancreatic bed going to be within the surgical field, or within the radiation field, but other structures are going to be as well, including the small bowel, the gastrojejunostomy, and even portions of the liver. So as a result, we're commonly seeing some findings that are related to radiation therapy, including thickening of the gastrojejunostomy, thickening usually of the right upper quadrant bowel, and in some cases, geographic areas of steatosis predominantly within the left hepatic lobe. Those are not unexpected findings, and for the most part, are just going to result from radiation therapy. So now that we've talked about normal findings and normal anatomy, why don't we take a short break, we'll come back in a few minutes, and then we'll start going through each of the different complications that I think are important for you to be able to recognize on CT. I'll see you soon. Bye. <laughs> 